All right, we are in Colossians. And uh, as you're turning to Colossians chapter 3, let me thank uh, Jeff Grant uh, for jumping in last week and preaching. How did you do, guys? Do you good? Yeah, I've heard great things. And uh, you're going to get more of Jeff as he comes on board with us in October as a staff member, working specifically to help us with assimilating uh, new people, bringing, uh, bringing new people, not just in the door and welcoming them, but taking them through the process of becoming uh, connected here to our body and helping them through that process. So he's going he's gonna to work towards that initiative and also give leadership to our older children's ministry, including the future youth ministry of middle school and high school. And so in October, I'm looking forward to him being on staff with us, and uh, he's already doing a whole lot uh, to help our church. And so uh, continue to encourage Jeff, and you'll hear more of him preaching uh, as, he, uh, as he plugs in with us here. Colossians, let me tell you what this letter is about, and let me tell you why this letter is in your New Testament. There's a lot of so-called religions out there that go by the name of Christianity that really don't amount to anything, Paul would say. They're frauds. Imitations of the real thing with a focus on the wrong thing. Amen? You run into some of these? In one way or another, Jesus always ends up taking a back seat. The person of Jesus always suffers in these fraudulent ministries. We, on the other hand, become the focus. We become... The human factor becomes the hero in these man-crafted religions. But that, Paul would say in Colossians, isn't true Christianity. True Christianity is, in a word and in a person, it's Jesus. It is in the Christ. He is the central figure. He is the priority. He's the pinnacle of all of history. He and His cross are the gospel. So Paul would tell us in Colossians, do not be confused by the counterfeits, because there's many of them. When you fall victim to their teachings, you end up with a focus on one of three false paths. Legalism would be one, he would describe in chapter 2. Essentially that just means that we come up with a bunch of rules the rules of Scripture, and then we even add some more just in case we can't keep those. We find some that maybe we can do a better job at, and we think that following those rules, following that list, will save us. That's essentially legalism. Mysticism is another route we like to take. If we're going to create the religion, we like to to make it nice and mystical, and we go weird, and we go super spiritual. And somehow we think if if we appear spiritual, then we are spiritual. And Paul said, that doesn't work either. If it's not legalism, if it's not mysticism, he mentions, uh, not in word, but in principle, this idea of asceticism. And maybe you've heard of this. It's the idea that if we could just remove ourselves from all the bad stuff in life, just separate ourselves from the bad stuff, as if there's no bad stuff in us, but if we could separate ourselves maybe even from the bad stuff that's in us, or that surrounds us, or in our culture, if we could just somehow draw that dividing line and get far enough away from that stuff, then that'll save us. And Paul says, that doesn't work either. But these are routes we, if left to our own devices, we take. Every one of these routes, by the way, is manufactured. And that's a, that's a good word for what happens. It's a manufactured religion, and it all comes from our own human reason. The philosophies of men, Paul would say in chapter 2. The elementary principles, the base principles, the ABCs, the one, two, threes of this life. And that's the best we can do. And when we do the best we can do, we get legalistic, we get mystic, and we get ascetic. 
And none of those things add up to salvation, Paul would say. None of them leaves us perfect. Right? And that's the mandate. Be perfect as I am perfect. Right? That's the verse in Scripture that comes from the mouth of Jesus. Be ye perfect as I am perfect, as your Father is perfect. That's the Scripture. That's the, that's the word from the very Son of God that should cause us to freak out and say, well, how do I do that? Because if we're honest at all, we all just have to admit, none of us are perfect. That's, that's the phrase, that's the challenge that should drive us to our knees to wave the white flag. None of these attempts, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, none of these philosophies that we come up on our own, none of them can wash us white as snow. Amen? So why do we try them so, so often? Why do we fall back into them so often? Listen to what uh, Paul says, Colossians 1, 19. He says this, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. That's Jesus. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. How do we get peace? Legalism? Mysticism? Sexism? Our own doings? No. Peace comes through the blood of the cross. What can wash us white as snow? Nothing but the blood we sing. Through Him, I say, verse 20, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, this is our state on our own, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you. He did it. He's the acting agent. He reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, that's the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's our only hope, Paul would say. Jump to chapter 2, verse 8. See to it then that no one takes you captive through, what, philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. It's just stuff we invent. The author is not divine. It's not a word from God. It's stuff that we think up. Be careful, he says. Don't get hijacked by guys who are peddling that kind of religion. Because that kind of religion is just us in our best efforts. And our best efforts always fall short. Philosophy, empty deception according to the traditions of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then jump to chapter 3, verse 1, and this is where he begins to make a turn in his letter. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and the inference is, you have. He's talking to the believers in Colossae. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, as opposed to the things in this world on an elementary ABC 123 level that we keep chasing after in their dead ends. Seek the things that are above. Where? Who is? That's where Christ is. He's been raised, seated at the right hand of the Father. Two, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So you see what Paul's doing here? See his, see his logic? You see where he's going? There's a lot of empty religion out there. And if we have to come up with our own ideas on how we're going to bridge this gap between us and our Creator that we all sense in our, in our soul that we have this divide between us, if we don't get a word from God on how that gap is bridged, then we just start shooting in the dark with our best ideas. And we get our smartest people together and we say, how do we do this? How do we impress God? How do we appease God? We try and keep lists. We try and look more spiritual. We try and shun evil. And Paul would say in chapter 2 that really none of that works. None of that actually does what it's intended to do. 
it still falls short. It still falls short. Christianity, he would say, is not what we do. It's who we are. Now notice the difference. Think about that. You may want to jot that down and ponder it later on your own. Christianity is not what we do. It's not a list of rules that we ascribe to morally and we try and follow them. It's not a good idea that we join up with this club called the church and we do our best job. That's not Christianity. Paul says Christianity is a, it's a, it's this rebirth. It's a transformation. It's a conversion to something completely different. You go from one species to a completely other. You go from being dead to alive. Born again. So what then, Paul, does living as a Christian look like? Great question. Chapters 3 and 4 give us a summary answer of what he has really said in greater detail in Romans and Corinthians and uh, Ephesians even and Galatians. He goes into greater depth on different points here. But he gives us this summarized version. If we are hidden with Christ in God, then we need to, chapter 3, verse 5, remember what his first command was? Cut off all the strings to this world that exists through our flesh so that we can be heavenly minded where Christ is. Because where are we in reality? We are with Christ hidden in God. And Christ is at the right hand of the Father. We're, we're all but in heaven. And so we're living out the remaining of our days here in the flesh. But the truth about us from God's perspective is that we are as good as there at the right hand of the Father with Christ already hidden in God. And so, how do we live? We've got we've to, what one pastor called commit spiritual suicide. We've got to consider, verse 5, the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires. We, we, we cut the lines to all those things in this world that cause Jesus to have to go to the cross to begin with. Paul says, if we're going to live in heaven up here, we can't have our strings attached to the world down here. We can't live in that hot air balloon still attached to the world and never reach our potential. If we're going to be heavenly minded, set our things in the heavenly, set our minds into the heavenly realm, then we can't through our flesh, through the members of our body. You know what the members of your body are? They're your hands, your feet, your mouth, your mind, right? The things that are still walking around here down on this earth that are influenced by the things on this earth. We've got to, we've got to cut, we've got to cut the strings so that they're not fed through our flesh those things of the world that cause immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, the world would feed us through our flesh. We've got, to, we've got to cut those connections. We've got to disconnect from those things. Not only that, in verses 8 and 9, he said you've got to not just cut some things off, you've got to take some things off. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. Lay them aside. It's the, it's the very... Uh, specific graphic word picture in the Greek of a person taking off a garment, an outer garment, and laying it aside. It's done. It's ruined. And now you need to discard it. Lay it aside. And what do we lay aside? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse, speech. So just in the same way that we can't allow the connections to the earth to cause these immorality, impurity, greed, idolatry, etc., we can't, we can't allow ourselves to continue to walk around in the garments that the world walks around with. They're filthy. They're rags. We've been washed white as snow. And so we, we, have, to, we have to cast those things off. And the picture of our salvation is that we're given a new, in Revelation, we're given a white robe. 
pure as snow, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Our old garments are gone. What he warns us against here in putting it off is that we don't go back and pick those things up out of the trash and try and wear them again as we're walking out the remaining of our life. Put them on over our heavenly garments. He says, that's ridiculous. Leave them in the trash. Burn them if you have to. What are those garments? They're the things that he describes. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Things of the world. Don't lie to one another. You've laid those things aside, verse 9, with all the evil practices thereof. Today, in verse 10 and 11, after telling us to cut some things off, take some things off, now he's going to tell us what we put on. What does a Christian wear? What does he look like walking around in our Christianity? In a word, he's going to say we're going to put on equality. We're going to put on equality. And let me just skip ahead here for just a second. If you've got your Bible open, you can scan through the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. If you've got some headings, maybe you can see what the rest of this letter is about. He's going to give us a word right here in two verses on equality. And based on that teaching, he's going to unpack how we live in relationships. If we get this word on equality, the rest of the letter just unfolds from there on how we live in relationships with our spouse, verse 18, wives, husbands, 19, children, 20, fathers, how do you live, 21, slaves and masters, 22 through 25, down through chapter 4, how do we live in community, etc., etc. How does our speech get affected by our Christianity? All this. And so all life is acted out in relationships. He's going to say, the first thing you need to know, before I start talking to husbands and wives, is this, this ideal of equality. It has to reside in the Christian who's born again. It has to. It's part of the conversion. It's not something you try and do. It's part of who you are in Christ, hidden in God. David Frost, guy who used to do a lot of interviews, I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, interviewed Billy Graham on several occasions. I think he even wrote a biography on uh, Billy Graham. He asked Billy uh, this question in one of his interviews. If you had a magic wand to eliminate any problem on earth, what would it be, Mr. Graham? Without hesitation, Billy said, racism, it's a cancer. It's a cancer. Paul, in these two verses, is not only going to target racism, but he's going to target anything that leads us to an inequality in the body of Christ. Billy knew uh, by experience, living in North Carolina for the mass of his life, what inequality could do to humans. Many of you remember what inequality has done to our country. You know, it's not that long ago that inequality was rampant and blatant in ways that uh, are not quite perfect yet, but are much different. Amen? It's much different. We sing the song and we teach our children, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious, all in His sight. We teach that as an ideal to our children because we instinctively sense that it's right. It's, it's part of the image of God that is ingrained in us, but yet we don't always carry it out, do we? 
The tragedy is, is when we are Christians and we don't carry it out. Paul would say that, that's like the Loch Ness monster. It's the abominable snowman. It doesn't exist in Scripture. We can't get away with that and be called Christians at the same time. Now, let me just say what I was probably planning on saying very last. Um, you may have been reared in a, an environment or a home that was conducive to inequality and fostered even racism and maybe even some of the other inequalities that uh, Paul mentions here. Um, at this point, we have no excuse. We have to, what Paul is going to say, is allow renovation to take place. So you hang on and you be sensitive to the Spirit as we go through this. Verse 10. And have put on, after we have taken off, verse 10, we put on the new, what's your translation say? Mine says self. Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who has created him. Literally, in the Greek it says, and have put on the new man. The old man is gone. We've taken him off, cast him away. There's a new man. And just like putting on that new outer garment, we've got to live in the robe of our new righteousness. There's a new man to be put on daily. It's a new man who is the true man. That's what the next phrase means. And put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. The word renewed could also be translated more specifically, renovated. And it's an activity that we're not doing. We're not doing the renovating. The picture here that Paul's painting is that God is doing the renovating. And so in this new creation that you are, in this new man that God has created in you, there's a renovation taking place. Anybody watch HGTV and watch these renovation shows? I love them, right? It's not one of these types of renovations where they come in and just paint the walls and cover all the yuck, right? But it's still under there. It's one of the renovations where they go in and they say, there's nothing here worth saving. Plow it down. Go right down to the foundation. And that is the work that God is doing through the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's a complete renovation. It's not just a, a cover-up. It's a from a ground-up renovation. That's what the word renewed means. And notice that you're not doing the renewing. You're not doing the renovating. God seems to be the author of the renovation. And He's renewing us to what? To, it's in the Greek, one word. It's to knowledge, but it's, it's the word epignosis. It's the word real knowledge. Knowledge on steroids. True knowledge, as is translated here in the New American Standard. What it means is, it's, it's Paul's way of pointing back to the false teachers and saying, you guys think you've got it figured out, but what you've got is the ABCs and the 1, 2, 3s. The real wisdom in living is the renovation life. It's the renovation life. So what God is doing in renovation is He's bringing us in accordance to truth. What are we doing in our Christianity for the remaining of our days here on this earth? We're being transformed, not conformed, by the renewing of our mind. We're being made into the likeness of our joint heir, Jesus Christ. We're being made to look like our Jesus. There's a transformation. There's a renovation taking place. And we're being conformed, transformed into who we actually are. We're not being made into something else. We're being conformed into what we actually are. We're taking now the residual of our bodies, 
of our flesh. And as we live out, we're making our flesh live according to truth. That's what he means when he says we're being renovated to a true knowledge. It's as if Paul says is that, you know what, we, we live in this life, but before we come to Christ, we're trying all this different stuff, but we're, we're living half-truths. We're not getting it right. True life is in Christ. And so what is God doing? He's renewing us. He's renovating us to real truth. He's making us who we truly are. Not only that, He's bringing us, look at the last phrase, into accordance to the image of the One. Who's the One? It would be Jesus in this case. The One who created us. Well, who created us? In Genesis we learn that that God the Father creates. But in our rebirth, the second Adam, births us again. We are recreated in accordance with the One. We're made joint heirs with Jesus. So those are true statements about us. They're not, it's not debatable. It's not something you have to uh, ascribe to in the sense that you have to try and attain it. You're not trying to attain to these things. These are, these are facts about you. They're facts about what comes with conversion. It's, it's what Christianity is. It's not trying to fulfill a list. It's not trying to be more spiritual. It's not trying to shun evil so you can impress God. This is part of what God does in the transformation. And He's the acting agent. We're being acted upon. This stuff ought be happening in the Christian's life. Look at the next verse. As part of this renovation, and as part of this bringing us into accordance with the image of the One who created us, Verse 11, he unpacks that a little bit and he says, here's, here's the reality of that theoretical statement. I mean, it's great to think about being renovated to truth and being uh, brought into accordance with the image of the one who created us, but what does that actually look like? And Paul says, here's what it looks like. I'll give you one right off the bat. It looks like in us there is no longer any distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You want to know what you want to know what this renovation looks like when it's done? You want to know what the goal is? You want to know where your life should be aimed? You don't want to know what coming into accordance with Christ really looks like? Isn't it interesting what Paul chooses as number one right here? What's the go-to? He doesn't go straight to wives and husbands and how we raise our children and how we act in business. He goes straight to this, this concept. Now, in mine, in verse 11, and even here on the screen, it says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. If, if you're looking in your scripture, if you have a good translation, it'll put some words in italics, right? And so the words in italics are a renewal and then in which there is no, and then distinction between is also in italics. And so anytime you see words, especially in the New Testament, in italics, right, what you can do with those words is you can, if you want, toss them out. They're not in the original language. They're put in there to help us in our modern English to kind of understand what the wooden Greek really means. But very often I've found that it helps to understand what Paul says to toss those italicized words out. And so what does it mean to be renovated to true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, dash, here's what it means, in which there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, etc. There's none of it. I mean, he gets right to it. It gets right to it. You want to know what it looks like? It looks like none of this stuff. There is no Greek or Jew. It's not there. He doesn't even waste 
words on saying there's no distinction between. He just said, there is none of it. Christians, there ought be none of it. Ought be none of what? He names several areas of social living. Greek or Jew, you're familiar with this. In the New Testament, in the minds of Israel, there were Jews and then there were Greeks. In the Greco-Roman world of the day, everyone other than Jews were, were Greeks. And they were very separate. Paul says there is no more of that. It's gone. It's gone. No more of that racial separation. Also, no more of that religious separation that they were holding to. Where do you get that? Circumcised and uncircumcised. If you were a Jew, you would be circumcised as a male. If you weren't, then you, you, were, you were not in that religion. It was mandated. Paul says that sort of thing, that symbol of the Old Testament, of religion, it's gone. There's none of it in Christ. There's none of it in His church. What else? You get social. You get uh, religious. You get, you get even the stratas of socioeconomic uh, living, barbarian and Scythian. Uh, I won't go too deep into this. Barbarians, uh, they were just known to be illiterate. They were barbaric. Uh, it's said that the word even barbarian comes from from this idea of stuttering, bar bar barbarian. That they couldn't they couldn't articulate anything. They were idiots of the day, and so you would be called a barbarian. Well, there's no more of that. Scythians. These guys were just referred to as sloths. They were lazy. That, that was the connotation of being a Scythian. They were sloppy. Paul says, there's just none of that. It's gone. You see how radical this is? You see how radical these words are? Not only that, slave and free. Do you know how many slaves there were? Do you know how many masters there were? Do you know how big a part of the socioeconomic system slaves and masters were? If you want to translate it into modern terms, you could just you, you, it's not the same, but you can possibly think about it just in terms of employers and employees. But it goes deeper than that. But Paul says there's no more of that. <laughs> there's no more of that. When you come in here, there's no assigned seating. There's no VIP section. Amen? Whoever you sit down next to, there's no more of that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter their racial background. It doesn't matter their religious background. It doesn't matter their socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how good looking they are. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. It doesn't matter how rich they are. None of that matters. In Galatians, he mentions even another and a couple other passages that parallel this. He, he uses this language very often in his writing. Uh, but it, it's not mentioned here, but he will say in other places, even male nor female. There's no difference. That's gone when we come in here. Now, what a, what, a, what a radical and what a transformational ideological principle that would be for the first century or for us. And this is the kind of message that uh, at some point in time, whether it's uh, towards the end today or when you go home, that you're just going to have to buckle down and get honest with yourself and say, where does any of this stuff still reside in me? 
And maybe you don't think about it much, and maybe some of it's subconscious, and maybe some of it that did come from your upbringing, and maybe some of it came from the environment you were raised in, and, and maybe some of it still resides in you in your Christianity, but you've got you to gotta get rid of it. That, that's just the fact of the matter. And you've got to be brave enough to search for it and confront it, even if the adversary is trying to hide it in you. And maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And even if the adversary is trying to help you justify some of it, because maybe somehow you still think it's right, or it's just, or it has cause. Paul says, very simply, there is no. There is no. Not in here. Not in Christ. Israel was not racial throughout the Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament, you realize that they were an evangelistic people. That was their intent. They were to be light and salt. They would bring people in. The genealogy of Jesus himself is, uh, is a colorful family portrait, if you ever want to do that study. They're not all the same. We are to be, by conversion, what our country has attempted to legislate by rules and moral regulations. We're to be that naturally because we're in Christ. The gate to the tabernacle, one preacher said, the gate to the very tabernacle of God was 30 feet wide so that all might come in. If we're going to hold, here's the point, if we're going to hold to a doctrine that we are all hopeless without Christ, if we're going to hold to a doctrine of grace, we must put an end to all these sorts of inequality. Uh, the truth is, our world, our lost world, thinks pretty logically, oddly enough, on this topic. And they're looking for the evidence in us. They're looking for real proof, aren't they? They're looking to see how hypocritical we're going to be on this. That our God could extend the gospel of grace to us, that while we were yet sinners, He could save us by His grace and His grace alone. And the only thing we can do is put faith in Him. And that we can preach a gospel that says we are all sinners, condemned outside of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then turn around and separate ourselves as if we're better or higher than someone else. When our very gospel says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the world says, something's not right there. Something's not right. There's nothing divine. If you need a picture, there's nothing divine about a bunch of middle class, middle aged white males singing Amazing Grace. It's not impressive at all. It's not a picture of heaven. It's not a realistic picture of heaven picture of the song, the eternal song in heaven will be of all tongues and all tribes and all races and all backgrounds, all in unison for the glory of God. Um, let, me, let me give you an aside right here. I think it's, it's important. Um, does this, and I'll start it with a question. Does this, does this kind of passage include the kind of equality that our culture is calling for in our day. I mean, it gives us a whole list here. Are there any others that we can throw in? 
namely equal marriage rights for gay and lesbian couples. How about we how about we hit on that hot topic? Um, it's probably another message for another day, but let me give you a short answer because I think it's relevant to our topic. But let me say this at the outset and hear this well. I'm, I'm throwing this in there probably for not the reason you think I'm throwing it in. So just hang on. Um, the answer is no. We cannot put that topic or that issue in with this other list. It's not the same. It's different. And for a few reasons. Let me give you just a few. Number one, neither this passage nor any other passage that sounds like it mentions a call to Christians for such equality. It's simply not in there. And so we've got to say that. Number two, even the biblical mention of equality between males and females maintains respective differences between the sexes. We are equal in value and worth, and we equally share in the glory and the grace of God, but we are different. We are different as separate male and female. And when you bring separate male and female with differences into a relationship, it is unique. It's not all the same, is the point. First Peter three one, you don't have to turn. Listen, Paul would tell or Peter would, would, would preach to the husbands that husbands are to be head over the wife. And that's a role. That's a distinction. That's a difference. Husbands play a specific role in the household. But he would follow that up by saying, he is to show her, quote, honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Is there equality? There absolutely is. But even that equality in in regards to what the Bible says about males and females, that equality among their distinctiveness, it, it doesn't contradict when you carry it over into marriage relationships. So there's no contradiction there. Number three, we can't call for equality in an area of life that violates clear areas of teaching in Scripture simply in the name of equality. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. We hold to the dignity of and the design of marriage between one woman and one man. That, that's the biblical stance. But in the, in the name of equality, we can't just tag on any issue we want. It doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, and by the way, we might ought to show just as much zeal for the one portion of that statement. One woman and one man. I mean, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of Christian effort these days towards, towards fighting the battle of the man and woman issue. But how about we get a little more zealous, perhaps, and rightfully so, on the, on the one part. Do we have just as much of a problem being monogamous and staying with the one that God has attached us to? We do. And so it's a little frustrating what battles we choose to be more zealous about. And it's frustrating to the world. So let me give you a couple reasons why I mention this. One of the reasons I mention this is because um, if you aren't diligent in your thinking, you might hear a passage of Scripture like this and think that you could throw in another popular equal rights issue like um, like gay and lesbian and, and, and homosexual marriage and the whole equal rights uh, issue that that has become in our country, you might just instinctively throw it in here if you're not, if you're not careful. And it, in one sense, might even make some sense to you. But 
to be clear, the fight for gay rights and equality is not the same as the racial war that our country has been waging for years and years and years. And that's, that's one of the ways that the, the issue has been pitched. But logically, it is not the same. The logic that is used to parallel the civil rights movement in a racial sense with the modern civil rights movement of gay and lesbian marriage, um, it is, is poor logic. They do not parallel. So it's not the same. Um, but listen to me, because this is the reason I really wanted to mention this. We as Christians need to be careful with our attitudes because lumping this cause in with the others seems very righteous and seems very honorable to those who are darkened in their thinking, to those who are not yet born again, to those who do not have a biblical perspective that God gives, that we don't come up with on our our own. This seems like a logical parallel and conclusion. And it seems like a just one, and it seems like a right one, and it seems like an honorable one. For those who cannot have a biblical perspective on the matter, the issue seems very much the same. Now let me remind you right here that you didn't come to a godly perspective on this or any other topic on your own. You weren't smarter than that other guy. God had to speak truth to us. He has to give us truth. He has to give us Wisdom. True wisdom only comes from God. Truth only comes from God. So you didn't come to those conclusions yourself, Christians. And so what I'm calling for here is a little bit of humility and a little bit of, a, a little bit of sensitivity and a little less attitude in the issue because it's not, it's not helping matters at all. In fact, it may be, it may be building more walls. Be careful not to be so puffed up right here that even in your subconscious prideful self you think somehow that you've, you've come to these conclusions on your own. You see, I think, I think this is sort of Paul's point regardless of the issue at hand. He, does, he doesn't include it here. It's not, it's not part of the, the, the list. But I, I, think it's, I think it's in principle on point. In the grace of God, Pride is done away with. That's the principle that we're, that we're boiling this passage down to. In, in the grace of God, pride is always done away with. There's no elevating of one of us over another. And so should that issue be lumped in here? No, not in truth. In principle, though, does the warning hold for us as believers? I think it does. The attitude that Paul is looking for in Christians is one of equality for unity among the believers, among the doctrine that is our salvation, among the gospel that is Jesus Christ. What is true gospel? What is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? How does it flesh out? It fleshes out that there is no more of this kind of stuff. And we don't throw that other one in there because it it contradicts so many other parts of Scripture. It's not mentioned here as something we need to avoid a distinction in. It's a proper distinction. And it makes sense when it comes to the doctrine of marriage and males and females and how God's created us. It makes sense for all those other reasons. But but listen, the attitude remains the same. We, We didn't run to Christ. Christ pulled the darkness back. 
He removed the veil, the scales from our eyes and from our hearts so that we could see what grace is. That's what grace does. So there's some humility to be had. I would even dare to say that those misinformed folks who might fight for such equality ought to be given some credit. They ought to be given some credit. Now listen carefully. They have been lied to. They have been duped. At the very least, you must give them some credit for fighting what seems to be a just cause on the ideal of equality. In other words, the ideology is honorable, but sadly it's misdirected. It's misinformed. But the ideology, it's honorable. But they're being lied to. They're being duped. And Satan is right in the middle of the whole thing. Amen? Lying, confusing, twisting. He's so cunning because in so many ways he causes, he causes this issue to seem to fit right into the mold. I'm out of time. Obviously, not all things are equal. But we let God decide. We let God decide. But on the things He's clearly not allowed us to divide on, we cannot. No, no more do we have divisions where God says there are no divisions. In fact, if you ever find yourself as a Christian living out your Christianity in the business of separating or dividing in your Christianity, you're probably headed in the wrong direction. If your Christianity starts to look like, on any regular basis, a carving out of a portion of those who might consider themselves religious, or a carving out, or if your attitude, or if your heart seems to be given to division of the body of Christ, and who's right and who's wrong, who's doctrinally correct and who's not doctrinally correct, not that we don't, not that we don't stand on doctrinal correctness, but if, you're, if your heart and your spirit is given to this 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 idea of being divisive, listen, that's not of God. That's not of the Holy Spirit. God is given to equality and unity in all things. It removes pride. Let me give you a list here. Let me give you a list here of what, what this passage should be able to do. In its teaching of equality, equality, biblical equality, produces at least four things. It extinguishes pride. You aren't any better. When we get biblically equal, you aren't able to say you're better in any other way than anybody else. Race, color, religion, background, socioeconomic, none of that. You're not any better. Equality does that. Equality exalts grace. You are in just as much need as the next guy. You were saved by grace through only your faith. And that faith was a gift of God, not of yourself, lest you might turn around and boast about it. It exalts grace. It also encourages evangelism. What do you mean by that? It removes any reason not to go. How many times have we not gone and shared because we don't think they deserve it somehow? We're better than them. We deserve it, but they don't. And maybe you've got some equalities in your, in your heart still, still deep down that keep you from thinking that that guy on that side of the tracks doesn't deserve the grace that was extended to you. That makes no sense when you say it out loud, does it? Grace is grace. So it extinguishes pride, it exalts grace, it encourages evangelism, and it is the evidence of the love of God. And it's more, but I'll just leave you with that one, it's the evidence of the love of God. Scripture says that those who are forgiven much do what? Love much. They love much. Um, Let me just end with the point. I think that we can boil this down to. In Christ, we have no room for division. 
we get that point, the rest of the letter will unfold very nicely. In Christ, there's no room for division. Did you notice the last phrase of verse 11? Put verse 11 up there, Mike. Because this is where the, the sentence ends. And this is really a summary of his entire point. But in Christ, Christ is all and in all. Here's what he means. Christ is all that matters if Christ is in all. Let me say that again. Christ is all that matters if Christ is in all. Put conversely, if Christ is in us, that's the only thing that matters. That puts us all on equal playing field. I don't care where you came from, what house you you came from, what kind of car you drove up, how much money you're able to put in the box. I don't care how smart you are, what school you went to. I don't care what religion you came out of. I don't, I don't, none of that. There is none. If Christ is in all, Christ is all. So what does that do? It exalts the glory of God and the love of the Father. It focuses on grace. Why is that in here? Because that's the gospel that we're living in. And that's the Christian that we're becoming. It's the Christian that God has made us. Let's pray.